Welcome to Redemption Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. We'll be in Hebrews uh, today, chapter 11, verses 17 uh, through 29. That's that chapter all on faith. It's four parts long. Uh, we're in the third part uh, of it today. Uh, but it says this, Hebrews eleven seventeen through 29. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Uh, and he who had received the promises, what it was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even to raise him from the dead, uh, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, um, sons of Joseph, bowing in worship even over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, had mentioned, uh, made mention of Exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, uh, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking uh, to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Father, we ask that you draw near to us. Um, I confess uh, and I've just got an anxious heart for some reason today. Uh, so we ask that you would draw near. Uh, do your work in your text. You do not need us, but you choose to use us. Uh, so we just lean into that and ask you that you would do your work. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you draw near to our hearts? Would you show us the beauty uh, of the gift of Jesus? May we begin to put our eyes on him, seeing him as the treasure worthy of, of everything, God. Uh, so draw near. Be with us. We need you. May you be glorified in our hearts. Amen. So there is a, uh, a Netflix show that we somehow got into over Christmas break out in Iowa with Allie's family. Uh, we just kind of started watching quite a few episodes because anybody could watch it and it was fine. Uh, but it's a show called Magic with Humans. Uh, and there, there's this host in it and, and his name is Justin Willman and he mixes kind of uh, magic into kind of everyday environments. So he does a lot of street walking, he'll go into restaurants, all different kinds of stuff. He does uh, magic tricks in regular environments and he puts some kind of cultural commentary in it that's, that's pretty witty and funny if you pay attention uh, to what he's doing. But uh, a, a, an episode or a bit that, that I saw from him came to my mind when reading this text and it's over... Uh, what's called the, the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. You've probably seen something about it, even if you don't know what it is, but that's where you give a child a marshmallow and you tell them in the experiment that if they wait for 10 minutes with that marshmallow just baiting them in front of them and they do not eat it inside of that 10 minutes, that they will get a second one. 
right? And then what you do is you leave the kid in a room for 10 minutes and you get to video what kind of happens in the, the, the meantime of how do they navigate around the, the one marshmallow. And the whole experiment is an experiment over uh, what, what we'll call delayed gratification, to see if a person can control themselves in the present moment through something that they want in order to later get something better. Only 10 minutes in, in the example in this experiment. Now, the, the original experiment kind of hypothesized that you could tell a lot about a child by how they would kind of deal with this situation. You could tell a lot about if they'd be successful, if they could restrain themselves and kind of how they would deal with things and later in life by whether they house the marshmallow or not. Uh, whether they can restrain themselves. And it's kind of funny to watch the kids' reactions. Like some of the kids, as soon as the, 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 the host of the experiment shuts the door and walk out, they don't even think. There's, and they just eat it, smile ear to ear, YOLO, best life now. I made the best decision ever. That marshmallow was delicious. Some just, they don't think. They just, they go. And they are proud of their very quick indulgence. I had zero marshmallows before and I have one. It's good in my book. And some will, will do something a little bit different. They will um, endure for a bit. And you see them and these videos are kind of funny because they almost like lovingly gaze at the marshmallow and they get their face like really close to it and they touch it and they, and they manipulate it. And then when they smell it, you know that they're done. And, and you know, halfway or so through, they eat the marshmallow. So they were able to restrain themselves for a short bit but not the 10 minutes. And then some children are able to do the whole 10 minutes successfully. For them, uh, the pursuit of the future prize is able to restrain them uh, for, the, for the meantime. The, the restraint is well worth it. In the, in the magic show, like how, how this kind of puts a twist into it and what was kind of funny is the, the director gave the kids a red solo cup and he sets them up by saying, hey, if it, if it seems too hard to look at the marshmallow, you can just take that cup and you can cover it. And that way you don't have to look at it. And maybe it'll make the temptation uh, not seem so strong in, in front of you. So you can cover it if you want. Just, just don't eat it. Cool? Okay, cool. And so he would leave and the kids would cover up the marshmallow with the solo cup and they'd look back under it and it would be gone. Right? That was the whole trick. And you'd see their face be like... Like in just complete shock that, that it disappeared. And it sets up a pretty hilarious moment because the host walks back in to the kids who hadn't actually ate the marshmallow. And he'd be like, oh, buddy, you just couldn't do it, huh? You ate it, right? And so he'd like this, this voice of, of disappointments. And the kids would try and explain like little liars. It just disappeared. He's like, yeah, sure it did. And it sets up a hilarious moment uh, in, in, in the show. And the, the whole thing is hilarious until one kid started crying. Then it was still funny, but it was sad too, right? And he ends up giving the kid a marshmallow later. But um, why this comes to mind is this specific experiment points a lot to some little oversimplistic elements, I know, but of the Christian life looking a little bit like the Stanford marshmallow experiment. Oversimplistic, but the logic still holds. There's a conscious battle for you and I to live for a lesser prize or a greater. And you have to make the decision of what will I do every single day. The greatest prize ever is available to you in the future. Part of the decision to run the race well is an active decision to live in light of the prize and not the momentary gratification now. This is the, the art of disciplining the body and the mind for the faith to follow Jesus well. We see kind of an, a tangible example of this 
from Moses in the text that we read today. Uh, the, the book of Hebrews in the 11th chapter, for that matter, are way too long to recap the entire thing, but a couple nuggets have to be held on to in order to kind of make sense of, of this. Hebrews is written to that group of people who they're struggling in their faith. They're not, uh, they're not brand new converts, but they haven't been saved for a super long time. They're struggling to keep the faith because all of a sudden following Jesus has become extremely costly to them. They're facing tension in the world, opposition, some of her enduring suffering, and it led to a situation where they're kind of eyeing the door going, should I leave or should I at least substitute this Jesus out and circle back to the law and the sacrifices and the priests and the old covenant systems and and do that instead. Let me sub out Jesus and go back to these other things to which the author says, Jesus is better. Right? You're not going to find anything better. He is the source of all that is truly good. So with that, hold fast. Don't waver, but instead run to the throne of God through Jesus. I love his logic. You're thinking of running away. I'm going to tell you to do the opposite. Run to the throne of grace through Christ. Pursue the presence of God in your suffering instead of running from God angrily in your suffering, right? To simplify the goal for the original audience and for us, the goal of this entire chapter 11 is to uh, show us the, the realities needed to create endurance. He wants endurance for us to stay even when times are heavy or hard. He wants this resilient ability to endure, to fuel our lives when we hit hard things. And, and he's going to give, in the equation here, he's going to give faith examples in order to build that. The idea is seeing the faith of others before us will build hope inside of us by pointing to what we have coming and this hope will build endurance. Faith yields hope and hope yields endurance and and endurance gives us kind of staying power so we can hold fast with Jesus even in the reality of difficult things. We got a little bit of a, of a definition of faith in the earlier part of 11. Faith is what we'll call um, warranted confidence and justified trust. Uh, it is a confidence and assurance in the hope of the promises of God. And there is always an element of this bold-faced belief even in the reality of your eyes not being able to see the full scale of the promise in the here and now. So, so confidence and assurance in the promises of God, even when the reality remains that you can't see it all now. The important nugget that the author wants us to understand is biblical faith has that element of looking to the horizon all the time. Faith isn't just about the, the acclamation towards and the acceptance of some, some facts. It is the confidence in something that, that, that is in the future promised by God. Without this element of the, the horizontal view on the promises of God, we do not have biblical faith. Uh, if our faith is just about facts, that's kind of cognitive agreement and that's not biblical faith. In the text today, we'll focus on Moses for the, for the biggest part and, and we'll see kind of what he does and make some radical decisions on how he will uh, have some, some costly decisions he makes in the now in order to receive uh, the prize later and we're gonna lean into that and hope that it stirs uh, hope and endurance in us. But before that was verses 17 through 22 and we don't wanna ignore these before we get there but we'll spend a little time in them but not as much as the the latter. We get several names in verses 17 through 22. Abraham again, and then Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So Abraham is mentioned for his faith twice in in a row, this time from a little bit of a different angle. He trusts God enough to be willing to lay down the most important thing to him on this side of eternity. 
And those almost don't seem like strong enough words to be able to illustrate what was happening there. Abraham and Sarah had wanted a child all of their lives. They're well into their 90s. They're like, we're spent, we're old, we're past our time, we're never gonna have a kid. And then in that moment when it seems impossible, God gives them Isaac a child. And, and you can imagine wanting something for all of of your life with your entire being and then trying and then weeping over disappointment and trying and hoping and trying again and again and again. And it always leads you to disappointment until finally it seems impossible, but you get what you wanted. And that's Isaac. Isaac was the apple of their eye, right? If they had Instagram back there, like he would be every picture and every story. He is the cherished part of their life. This is the thing that they wanted more than anything else. And it's also what God asked them to lay down. Abraham, even in the heaviness of the idea of sacrificing Isaac, he doesn't delay at all, though. And that's kind of what's interesting in the text. is he raises early in the, the next morning for the purpose of obedience. It kind of hits a little bit, right? We often ignore God over small things, or we slow play him, or we whine, or we mope to, to kind of go slow, like, like, the, like the mentality of when I tell my boys to clean the room, and they're like mm, barely moving. We do that with God a lot. And, and Abraham, in, in the middle of the most difficult thing possible, staring down the proposition of losing uh, what he loves the most, sprints towards obedience, or whatever the equivalent of moving faster than a 90-year-old man can do. He moves quickly towards obeying. Hebrews tells us what, what Abraham would have been facing with in, in this time. It's not just the, the proposition of, of losing the thing that he loved the most, his child, but also with losing this child would have also been the, the, the loss of his entire line, the future jeopardy of his line, and even the, the blessing of the nations and the multiplying through his line. All of those things would have been in jeopardy. How, how will my line multiply like the stars or like the, the sand on the, the, the ocean? If I take out my, my, my only child, the whole thing's going to be over. The tension here is his choice affects more than him in the moment. It affects his family line and, and it could wipe it all out for forever. But what we see is Abraham had a, a type of uh, Noah-ish faith that trusts and place faith in God, even when it couldn't see how in the world it'll work out to do that. He trusted God and that God would not lie to him or break his promise. Uh, and that even if he had to, the text says he, he believed even if he sacrificed his son, that God would raise him because he doesn't believe that God would, would be a liar. God would do something. If we track the story, Abraham was faithful to God and God in turn was also faithful to Abraham and gave him out at the last second. Then the author tracks in Hebrews the line of Abraham down four generations. What is that telling us? Abraham's faith affected his son Isaac. And he taught Isaac how to live in faith towards God. Then Isaac took that and continued the faith lessons that he received from his father with his sons, even to the, to the point that Isaac passed the blessings of God onto his boys is the last thing that he did before he died. If you think about Isaac's life, his life opened with moves of faith. And then it closed with moves of faith. Then Jacob, though in some shady-ish ways at times, he passed on the faith to his family as well. The trajectory of the faith that started with Abraham and Sarah went to Isaac and then to Jacob. And from Jacob, it went to Joseph. What is he lining out about an enduring faith here in the text for us? It, it's the Old Testament proverb being walked out. It's Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and even when he was old, he will not depart from it. 
This opens up a kind of fairly new view. Faith in your choice to hold to it and teach it to to your children will, will not just affect you, It'll be passed down into your families intentionally. This, is this a, a guarantee that 100% of the time, all the time, that, that no person raised in the faith or taught the faith will, will, will ever walk away? No, but it is a good rule of, faith, uh, of thumb. Most often when faith is modeled properly in the home, in word and deed, and the parent does, doesn't just take their kid to church, but he teaches them about God and how to live out their faith, their child will keep the faith in their own lives, and then their own children's. This is part of our covenantal God and how he works things out. This is how he's designed the the world. It is the exception of the rule for a child to cast away faith in God when they are raised up rightly, and the parent models it. It, it, That that is not the norm. The norm is that it's super hard for a child to leave when they're they're brought up in the faith well and taught the faith well and see it modeled from their mom and dad because the child wants to follow the parents. This is why family discipleship is so important, why real faith is needed, why parents need to do more than just go to to church. They have to show their kids their faith. They need to show their kids the goodness of God because when taught and modeled it, the kids will begin to follow the lead. What what this means is the author of, of Hebrews is trying to kind of widen the original audience's perspective. They're romancing the, the idea of walking away from Jesus wouldn't just affect them is what he's saying. It wasn't just a a decision that had a small and an immediate impact. It ripples into the decision that will flow into their entire family line. If you walk away from Jesus, this is going to affect your kids. It's going to affect their life. Similarly, this is a call for for parents among us to, uh, to act like and understand that your job is to model faith in God to your parent or to your children. Um, Really often right now, we hear this line touted as um, healthy and tolerant and, and good. Um, I don't, I don't want to push my kids into my faith. I just, you know, I, I want them to make the choice for themselves, right? We hear this line as if it's fostering health, and it's actually the, the loving thing to do. I don't want to push it on them. I'm just going to kind of let them figure it out for themselves. The Bible would call this sinful negligence. And it would verge into spiritual abuse to your children. A parent who does this is only a parent who doesn't actually believe faith in God is needed. That's the only one who will do this. If you think it is important, there is, there's no way that you go, oh, just figure it out on your own. You'll be okay. I'm just going to let you figure it out. This is the equivalent of letting your kid play in traffic so that they can figure out it's dangerous on their own. Only a fool would do that. If you believe faith in God is what we need, then it's crucial to live in light of our faith, then you raise your children in it and you don't walk away because it'll affect you and it'll affect your kids. And maybe someday your, your children's children. We, we too narrowly view the next three months or one month and we don't have five-year and 10-year and 20 and 50-year views. So what will these decisions do? And the author saying, hey, don't walk away. Don't walk away. While that's a heavier way to say it, there's an encouraging way to say it as well. Your faith walked out well in front of your children to the best of your abilities is not meaningless. It's not a waste of time and it's not fruitless. Even when you don't see it working or it feels choppy or disjointed or you set up a Bible study and, and, you, and, and my kids are like punching each other in the parts and you're like, why am I even doing this? It's not meaningless. It lays bricks of foundation under them that it's really hard for them to walk away from. It's hard to ignore a faith walked out well that a child who wants to model his parents ultimately sees that they love God and they trust God. 
Faith doesn't just shape you, it shapes the eternity of your children. All of that is through Christ. But you can set up a firm foundation or a weak, terrible foundation. And, and the author's saying, hey, don't walk away. It's going to affect them as well. Then we move into the parts of the story of Moses. It says, I'll read back just verse 24 through 26. I don't need to read the whole part. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. His eyes were on the the horizon, the, the promise of God. One of the common questions in life is how do you change the behavior of men and women? How do, how do we change? What works? What, what doesn't work? In, in biblical terms, how do, you may, how do you motivate yourself and others to, for, to forsake sinfulness and to pursue holiness? How do we empower ourselves to say no to, to temptation and, and yes to the ways of God? And what works not just in a, in a short term, like for, for a season, but, but work, what works over the, the long term to, to change the lives of men and women and change the behaviors of men and women? And often what we'll find is that obedience is, is actually, we, we pass it on and we model it and we teach it and we display it through uh, coerced negative result associations. Hey, don't overindulge in alcohol. Why? Because you could get a DUI. Nobody wants a DUI. Right? You got to live with that. You know how expensive that is? Hey, don't look at pornography because you get caught. And if you do it at work, you're probably going to get fired and caught. And then maybe they put that on your Indeed page. I don't know how that works. Right? Don't, don't lash out in anger because you can get a, a reputation of being a hothead. And uh, you don't really want to walk around with that. And don't cheat on your taxes because, I mean, I, I heard my friend got audited. And, like, man, that was a terrible deal. Do you know how much he had to pay? Like, that, you don't want to do that. Don't forsake truth because you, then you could be pegged as a, as a liar. And nobody wants to be like pegged as that guy who everybody knows that they're always lying. The general idea, if we aren't careful, has little to do with the heart or even God. And it has, uh, has a whole lot to do with obedience, not from a desire uh, to obey, but an obedience that comes out of obligation or fear. Well, the obligation or fear may be real, and if we, if we time out, like, sometimes they're actually helpful. They aren't always helpful in the long run to actually deal with the entire problem as far as overcoming the desire in the first point. The, the point is obedience from sheer willpower alone is, that's founded on obligation and, and fear alone will never free the heart to joyfully obey. Maybe it'll do it because it has to, but it doesn't do it because it wants to. Right? That, 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 that's not a preferred way to live in a light where you're having delight in the words of God and the ways of God. And you're like, I don't feel forced into obeying. I want to follow. How do we get that? Well, Moses shows us a little bit of that in the example of faith here. The text says that Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. The, the story has to be examined. Moses was found by Pharaoh's daughter, right? So Pharaoh had put out the edict to, to kill all the young boys. Uh, so Moses' uh, parents hid him for a little while. Then they send him down the river. And then Pharaoh's daughter finds him because they didn't want to kill him. And she ends up saying, well, I don't want to kill him either. And I, and I don't want to let him die. I'm going to kind of keep him. All right, so she takes him in. He was going to die. 
Then Pharaoh's daughter takes him in. Pharaoh was the, the richest person in the, the, the face of the, the earth, the most powerful person known to, to man. So imagine the wealth of, uh, a wealth that made Jeff Bezos look like a chump, like that type of, of wealth, or absolute power over any and all people and all of the culture. Moses turned down all that would have came with that through being called the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. M- Moses could have gone like, yeah, I'll take it. That sounds great. Yeah, okay. He could have been a made man, literally given everything that he could have wanted or any person on earth could have wanted. The, the treasure of Egypt that would have been available to him, we can kind of vaguely imagine what that would entail. Money without limit. Literally, no when They had all of the resources, authority over tens of thousands of people, fame that would have reached over all the land, military power, if that's your thing, it would have been available, access to the best food and drink whenever you wanted, sexual pleasures beyond imagination, everyone bowing in your presence, everyone quick to obey everything that you ever wanted to come to pass, all the treasures and pleasures of the world offered up to you on a silver platter. And Moses said no. He threw it away without hesitation. Now, negative results and fear had no bearing in this decision, right? Fear of obligation had no place there either. Moses wasn't saying no to keep being, from being judged by other people because if he said yes and other people judged him, he'd be like, kill them all, right? He, he was not afraid. He, he didn't do it to stay out of trouble with a small group of people, and he didn't do it to kind of keep some sort of, of reputation. What made Moses say no to power without limits, treasure without limits, and pleasure without limits? Go back to the Stanford marshmallow experiment, right? All the way back. Moses knew that the fleeting pleasures of sin had nothing on the eternal blessings of God. And he decided to align his life with that belief. In a crude manner, why would he eat one marshmallow now when he could have infinitely more and better ones for all of eternity through God and with God later? I love what Sam Storm says about this verse in Moses. Moses didn't just wake up in the morning and say to himself, Egypt stinks, money is worthless, sex is boring, power is dumb. Fame is overblown. No, something happened that recast Moses' vision and altered his uh, evaluation of, of pleasures and treasures in the world. Something happened. The way he looked at the world wasn't the same as the way that everyone around him looked at the world. What exactly happened to alter that evaluation? Well, it says he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth. He made a value proposition and decided to live through that greater than the, the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the, to the roar, to their eternal reward. Moses wasn't blind. He looked at all that was offered to him and he chose pain and sacrifice and endurance and reproach instead from the people around. The full spread of the, the world is laid in front of him. You can have it immediately. And, and yet he passed on this immediate gratification to receive what immediate pain. Again, it wasn't that the spread revolted, or like made him sick or, or he's like, no, I don't, I don't want that stuff. Of course that stuff was appealing. But something else was more appealing. 
There's a greater desire, a, a greater reward. Moses knew that the promises of God to send a deliverer from sin were, was available. That deliverance from the, the power of sin was available. Renewed relationship with God was available. Restoration of all things and the way that God meant for it was available. And any of those are much, much better than the fleeting and temporary sinful pleasure offered to you on a platter. There's ways when you sit back and look at this, the way that Moses was tempted to, to receive the, the title under Pharaoh is a little bit like the way that Jesus, when he sent out into the, to the wilderness for 40 days, what did, what did the enemy do to Jesus as well? Here's the pleasures of the world. Do you want them? It's the same thing that we get offered every single day. Here's the pleasures of the world. Will you chase them? Do you want them? And you have to make the decision. Is fleeting stuff better than the eternal reality offered to me by God? In Moses' mind, it became clear trading momentary pleasure and power was a childish and foolish trade when compared to the eternal blessing of God available to him. Why trade what lasts forever for what lasts but just a vapor? Why trade pleasure forever with the creator of all things for a couple moments? It's like a silly child who houses the the marshmallow, and, and it's like, I made a good choice. He's going, that, that, that's not a good trade. That's not smart. And, I, and I, I think we can see why this example is here and why it fits into the definition of faith given. Faith for Moses is the same, uh, that, that it really looks like faith. His faith is the same as what ours would be like in the 21st century. Why? Because it has to begin to live for what it cannot see fully here. It has to begin to, to live for something that it cannot experience all of it in the here and now. Why? Because there's this confidence assurance that something else is better and promised to me. There are some who feel uncomfortable with this. And they think it feels almost like we're using God to get more pleasure and treasure by this logic. I don't know if I'm okay with that type of logic. Like we're using him to as an, a means to an end to get more stuff. But what that angle forgets is God invented pleasure and joy himself. Right? He, he's, not, he's not anti-fun and joy and pleasure and treasure. He created it. God created out of an overflow of his goodness and he invited in, us into it to, to relationship with the Godhead and enjoying all that creation had to offer at the same time. His grand plan isn't to steal your, your smile and your joy and your pleasure. It's to restore it without the burdens and the brokenness of sin. It's to restore the beauty of what creation was meant to in right relationship with the God that you are wired to connect with. It's a restoration of all things broken. It is not that you're using God. It's God is fixing things and you get relationship with him with all the other stuff that God created. Part of the Christian life is to live for the kingdom of God brazenly and boldly, and boldly instead of living for the world and all that the world can offer. Why? Because it's a better vision. It, it's a better prize. Our inheritance is better in God. Don't give away your inheritance for some fleeting momentary pleasure is what the author is trying to, to show us here. This type of life, though, if you begin to make decisions that have an opposite grid of ones that want pleasure and joy and treasure now, if you begin to, to live for the internal instead of the now, you will look insane to the world. But when all is revealed and Christ returns, you'll understand fully again that you made the right choice. 
Again, if you're wondering why is this text about better prizes right here and right now, the original audience was considering what? Subbing out Jesus. You're causing me trouble. Following you is causing me tension and suffering and brokenness in the world uh, around you. And, and, and I want my life to be easier, not, not harder. Following Jesus was, was costing them earthly pleasures. So they're going, maybe I go around you and then life is easier and I get more of the stuff that I ultimately wanted. The, the message from the author is that's a bad trade. Don't. Hold fast. All the beauty of eternity is given through Christ and in Christ and with Christ. Don't make that trade. Don't sub him out. And for us who might be tempted to, to not sub out Jesus, what have we talked about in the last two chapters? We're not tempted to sub him out. We're, we're, tempted, we're tempted to, to hide him to blend into the world so that we can kind of keep the life in culture that we want, so that we can feel comfortable, so we can get the, 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 the path of, of least resistance, so we end up kind of like putting the, 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 the Jesus shirt on and then putting other stuff over it, just not letting anybody see the reality of what, uh, of what we say that we are following. And the message is the same. Don't hide Jesus to get the world's stuff or make the world love you. Don't trade your inheritance away for something you get right now. Don't ignore Jesus to get some momentary pleasure now. And something's happened where heavier words are harder for us to understand. But there's a reality we need to hear here. If you live as one ashamed of Jesus here, Jesus will appear ashamed of you in the eternity. Right? If you confess Jesus as Lord and follow him boldly here, he will confess you in front of the Father forever. He's interceding for those that are following him. It's a mistake to think that you can hide and secretly kind of live ashamed of him and that that's never going to pop up. That's not what following him looks like. And I want to clarify too in here, this is not acting for huge overt actions to prove that I'm a real Christian, to make everyone mad at you, to show you for real and like and throw everything away and you can't have an iPhone or anything nice all in order, just follow Jesus. No, it's just a clear call don't hide or minimize or look over Jesus. Be careful. Watch the moves that your heart is making at times, even unbeknownst to you, where you begin to kind of manipulate faith or how it's walked out or, or little decisions that you make in order to kind of hide him or, or, or get more stuff now and instead of living for him in all of eternity. Be careful. The world has a lot of shiny, beautiful things to offer. Don't take the single marshmallow. I think the beautiful reality that the author of Hebrews is showing us is when the world presents everything to you to try and get you to, to be baited and take it, it's the reminder Jesus is better than the world and he's overcome the world. Go with him. Go with the creator, the sustainer, the one who's proved his love enough by dying and shedding his blood. Has the world ever done that for you? Jesus has. The choice becomes each of ours, what will you live for now or eternity? The author implores us, those who have ears, hold fast. Think the many times Paul says, sow your treasure in heaven. You're like, oh, that's figurative speech. No, it's not. Like, there's a reality to, to, to how we actually live that is sowing treasure in heaven. Hold on to hope now, even when the world whispers pleasure is available to you. It's like the story back of, of Jacob and Esau. What, what does Esau do? He trades his entire inheritance for a bowl of soup. And we can sit back and go, what an idiot. We don't analyze the way that we're kind of doing the same thing with some of our decisions in our life. Be careful. Do not trade what lasts of etern for eternity for what lasts only a moment. 
We want to keep in, uh, in front of us the understanding of this greater treasure. The things that the author is pointing us to and towards all come in and through Jesus. So I want to be a little careful. It's not that you could have a million dollars here or you could have $2 million if you withhold from the flesh now. The idea is that every good gift comes from God in heaven and it comes in connection with God through Jesus. The revelation that the author wants to begin uh, for us to see is that Jesus isn't a barrier to getting the price. He is the price. He is what we get. He is the beauty. Then all other things make sense and you enjoy the world. You enjoy good gifts that are given to you through Christ because you're restored. We're not for a second trying to use him to throw him away and get more prizes. It's the revelation. This is the power for believers to endure. When faith leads us to live for the future promises of God, so we begin to know that the world just doesn't have anything for us. This is, there, there's, there's a guy, if you want to look it up later, he, he's got a, 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 they've got it as a free PDF that you can get now, old, dead guy, but the expulsive power of a new affection. And he speaks completely about this. What begins to change the, the, the wiring of a human being on how you live and what you live for? You don't ever destroy something that you love and not go after it anymore. You create something or you see something else that you love more and you'll go after that. This is what the author is showing us. See the beauty of the kingdom. It's better. It's beautiful. Live for it. The other stuff, it's always going to be shiny. It's always going to be appealing. But Jesus is better. As far as points of application and prayer... It'd be wise to spend a couple moments just asking the Holy Spirit to give you a clear picture of what you've been living for over the last season. We're not always looking to destroy ourselves or find what we're doing wrong. There are many moments that we can uh, rejoice in the beauty of what God has done, but it is a wise thing to slow down and say, hey, will you show me what I'm living for? If our home and our work and our neighborhood are places that, that, that Jesus is being exalted in or being minimized in, will you show me? Will you show me what I'm living for, what my decisions are, are, are aimed at? Will you show me really the, the, the reality of, uh, of the operating system of my heart? Has, has love of the world kind of crept in and it's begun to mold decisions that I wasn't even seeing? Holy Spirit, we, we speak into that. An understanding that it is his kindness if he begins to show you. Here's the way that the Spirit begins to work. He, he doesn't say, hey, the, the Father hates you. He begins to say, hey, what about this, buddy? Hey, hey, what about this? Hey, what about this decision? And hey, hey, what about the work that all of a sudden you're kind of doing this and then and these things you can't do anymore? And you're not really spending time with, with the Lord. Like, like, this is kind of how he works. He begins to show you things. So in worship at the end, just, Father, show me what I'm living for. My heart's deceitful. Sometimes I can't see the reality of, of what things are pointed at. Will you show me? Maybe the, the Spirit would be quick to show you just some really quick ways, and you already have three pop in your head of just earthly pleasure that spend what you've been living for now. Whether it's through escape, right? We're good at that one, or, or, or indulgence. Maybe the Holy Spirit is inviting you to, to kind of set some of those other things down and walk back into a life that's living for eternity to repent and live for the glory of God instead of the, the momentary things that will ultimately let you down and hurt you. Your shiniest toys, right? They're all going to be in a landfill someday. The Lord calling you to live for an eternity is it's, it's not a mean thing. It's a kindness. 
If God has already been kind of doing a work here and, and he's been freeing you and showing you of, of ways that you are living only for the now and, and you are pursuing uh, eternity and he's emboldening you and showing you the realities that, that he is better than some other things and you even see some ways that your confidence and your hope has been transferred into to things that it used to not be, then it, it's a moment to celebrate that too. We're not just going, what have we done wrong? We're going, Lord, let us see the beauty of what you have done. Sometimes he has work to do. Sometimes he wants to show you the work that he's already been doing so you can celebrate and thank him. If that's the reality of it, thank him for the work that he's done and ask him to, to continue it. The, continue, or the, the takeaway for this is the Lord doesn't want us to be terrified and he doesn't want us to be intoxicated with running after the things of the world. He doesn't want begrudging submission He doesn't want you to not do something but deeply go, I wish I could have done it. Why won't he let me have it? He wants to free you to see Jesus as better. Following him is not hurtful. This is why uh, King David in the Old Testament said that like your your, your commands and your words, your laws, they're like honey because ultimately you're loving and you're good and you're kind. You're not trying to steal from me. So the hope is that we would believe that more, walk into the invitation of living for eternity, that the blessings of God would, 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 would be a, a higher value in our minds and in our hearts to where we want to live for those things and we're not just trying to make ourselves be good. In light of Hebrews, what is the other formula that helps us do this? How do you continue to see the promises of God as more beautiful than anything else? we see the invitation to the throne of God again. What's this way? You're not gonna make yourself think heaven is greater. It's when you keep looking at the face of Jesus that you begin to realize over and over and over he's greater. So the invitation here is when we're struggling and when we're not, hey, Jesus has made a way for you to draw near to God to your Abba, to your Father, so that you can have your your life and your heart untethered from the things of the world and tightly tethered to him if you struggle or even when you don't. The invitation is the same, come into the presence of God. See the beauty of who he is. Let that strengthen you in his presence. The glory of God and the beauty of Jesus are meant to eclipse over the reality of the world around us. That's what he wants. He doesn't want you wishing you could do what you want. He wants you free to follow him and know that he is good. I hope that he will do that in us. I hope that he will increase that. We'll spend moments worshiping here at the end. Uh, Gary and Allie, you guys can come back up. And in this time... Would you ask the Holy Spirit to see yourself clearly, your life clearly, what you are living for clearly in prayer, and then sing and celebrate with us and come to the table. We'll take communion today. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three starts off like this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What's another way to continue to see the beauty of our eternal promise? You come to the table. See your body and your blood. They're for me. You were killed on the cross and your blood was spilled for me. Whether I've been living in light of that or not, you are not upset that you've done it and it covers all of my shame and all of my sin. So we draw near to God through the table. My hope is that your heart would be encouraged. Your father is good. 
There's a good promise that he's made you. He gives you the table to continue to remember the promise of what Jesus has done. May your heart be encouraged. May it be built up and may you be emboldened to live for eternity instead of today. That would be the hope. Would you stand with me?